Greetings and welcome back to another exciting installment of the fifth column podcast. This is your mostly weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle, the people that make it and ourselves. It actually sounds like I dropped that in post. It's weird. Uh, You've gotten the warning already. This is episode 71, recorded on August 31st, 2017, the last installment of the summer, people. Um, I'm Camille Foster of Freethink Media. The guy who just said boom a second ago is Matt Welch, editor-at-large of Reason Magazine. Michael Moynihan, national correspondent of HBO's Vice News Tonight, is in Moscow on assignment. And it's obviously Moscow. Doing some sort of research, I'm sure, related to the uh, the major Trump scandal revelations uh, related to the uh, Trump Tower that should have been built in Moscow but wasn't. The last time I saw any word from Michael Moynihan, um, Hollywood Hollywood comrade Moynihan, mm-hmm. um, he was posting pictures of himself on Instagram with a youngish Russian who was eating a Pepe the Frog sheet cake. <laughs> I think to celebrate his or her birthday. Yes, yeah, something, something, something androgynous like kind of situation. I wonder if he wants that story told. Maybe he doesn't want that story shared. He put it up on Instagram. Okay. Fuck him. I suppose that's fine. You're right. It is. And, he's, and this is the second show in a row, and like the third out of five <laughs> that he's been gone. So like his little. It's true. You no, know. we're gonna air all your dirty laundry, Moynihan. Yeah. All of it. Damn it. Um, Matt, uh, it's been a little while since I've seen you. There's been plenty of things that have happened. You went and did real time and with, uh, with the Reverend Jesse Jackson. How was that? I so I was so close. I was so close to building up the nerve. Cause you know me, I don't like to talk to famous people. And, uh-huh. uh, and he, when he enters a room, when he's not, you know, busy uh, trying to fundraise, which is what he spends most of his time doing in a room, uh, backstage, but he's like the most famous guy in the room. And like, mm-hmm. I, so, uh, he barely noticed that uh, that I existed and I wasn't going to talk to him. But I was really like, hey, could you just could you just like say in, in my, my little tape recorder here? Happy birthday, Michael <laughs> Moynihan. My grape has d- turned into. I thought, ah, if I was, if I had a, a like a, a personality so like our friend good. Kennedy or like Camille, yeah, I would have done it. You got, you get right up in there, but I'm, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm shy. In I like crowds. that. I get right up in there. Uh, you do, you do. Yeah. The, my big thing now is for, this is for people who listen uh, closely each week and recall my. Um, uh, bad uh, condition, uh, murdering flies and uh, and being laid out on a couch somewhere in the Rhineland uh, is that I, I got so I've been gobbling pain medications for the last five weeks uh, in order to forestall uh, uh, screaming about uh, the problems in my shoulder. And I had to change out those pain medications. And when you change from what the French doctor gives you to what the American doctor gives you, mm-hmm. the American doctor gives you stuff with a don't drink alcohol with it. Warning the French. They're like, yeah, come on. You know, know, it's fine. fine. How how Uh, could we really expect you to do that? So because this is the fifth column podcast and because we have an expectation, nay duty, uh, and, uh, also kind of a physical, uh, aching need, uh, to drink while we, um, uh, record, um, 
I'm like 24 hours without any painkiller. So I'm having a good time, (laughs) but I'm really, really on edge here. So if I start just like screaming at you, uh, uh, like inappropriately this time, Uh uh, accusing you of what aboutism when you're just sort of like drinking water, it's it's just the lack of pain medication talking. It's not my real honest feelings. So so you're Moynihan this week, basically. I'm kind of that uh, Moynihan. (laughs) Not quite as good looking, but my life's in much better shape. And and that voice that you've heard is, uh, is one Anthony Fisher, our uh, our comrade in arms, who is who's here running the controls, wearing his uh, his famous gamer headset. Um, and, you know what he's uh, wearing? Chiming if, in. if we're being honest about this, he's wearing kind of a white polo. And I think there are some khaki shorts, like uh-huh. t- 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 the Tiki Torch. Uh, is that like over in the closet there? <laughs> Listen, there, there's literally only three more days where it's uh, acceptable it's to, wear, to wear this outfit the and not be called a neo-Nazi. It is, it is still, it's been, it's been temperate in New York, but it's, it's, uh, it's, it's hot and I run hot and I will wear shorts until Labor Day uh, and mm-hmm. I, with no apologies. Yeah, okay. No apologies because both sides are to blame. <laughs> Stop That's it! That's great. <laughs> I actually call this ensemble equivocation. That's good. <laughs> That's good. Well, speaking of equivocation, nice. I actually don't really have a segue. I, I don't <laughs> have one. Did you know Kid President like still makes videos? Kid President is 32 years old. The little boy, the little black kid who used to who say, drown- hi, I'm Kid President. Who like, was drowning in the Nirvana album cover? That's not Kid President. Oh, okay. It's a different kid. Right. You don't remember Kid President. Not really. No. It doesn't matter. But he's old. Yeah. And he's like still in office, quote unquote. You don't know what I'm talking about. It's nope. fine. Nope. All right. Well, look, there's been a bunch of stuff that's happened in the last week. A lot of news. Sebastian Gorka and stuff. Uh, the Joe Arpaio has been pardoned on a Friday because that's when you do things when you don't want people to talk about them also happens to be the day that a massive storm began pounding Texas, um, a huge super storm. Uh, there has been a tremendous amount of coverage of this storm, um, but we don't want to just talk about the, the, the politics of calamity, of environmental um, and weather related news uh, without having someone fully qualified to do that. So our dear friend, Mr. Ron Bailey, award-winning science correspondent for Reason Magazine, has agreed to join us this week. Ron, how are you? Thank you for uh, being here. I'm delighted to be with you, and thank you for having me. Did you did you fill up the scotch as instructed? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I'll wait to see how this goes, and maybe I'll t- I'll, I'll, I'll I'll take one uh, to get over what happened. Like yeah, 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 you're you're going to need it. Drown my sorrows, as it were. You're going to need it. Well, Ron, I mean, this is a this is a pretty, pretty huge storm of category four, as I understand. I don't I don't really know what those categories are all about, per se. But as I understand, it dumped like four feet of rain on Houston. Um, I did sort of peruse a a piece over at Vox called uh, why the Houston flooding got so bad. And and there were a few different things talked about. I mean, the first thing being that there was. Uh, sort of upper level winds in the atmosphere usually steer big hurricanes and keep them from moving after they make landfall. But this apparently just kind of sat over the region um, from right there on the coast uh, where Houston is and sort of stretched all the way out to Austin. Um, can you talk a little bit about what on earth was going on here and how this storm compares to previous storms in the region? 
Sure. Uh, it, it does seem to have been a, a record-breaking storm for the records that we have. I do want to remind your listeners that uh, the te- Texas is no stranger to tropical storm inundation. In 1979 and 78, uh, there were storms called Amelia and Claudette that also dropped basically the same amounts of water on that area. 48 inches and 42 inches on coastal and central Texas. So they've seen this kind of flooding before. Of course, what's happened is is that a lot of people have moved to Texas in the meantime, and uh, therefore there's a lot more people and a lot more property at risk. Yeah, and I mean, with with storms like this, um, Matt, I mean, one thing that we can always expect is politicians to show up, particularly the president of the United States and maybe the vice president. Um, I, I saw both sort of the images of um, Donald Trump and Mike Pence there on the ground. Mike Pence today, I saw a video of him in his uh, jeans with sleeves rolled up, throwing a branch into a pile of branches, Uh, no sweat um, under his arms or anything like that. Um, And of course, I saw um, other photos of Barack Obama, a man who really meant it when he showed up at things like this, hugging people, holding them, consoling them. I imagine he genuinely cares about people, um, but there's something about uh, about situations like this where you know you fly across the country in some cases you show up likely draining resources away from first responders sometimes touring the actual place where people are still being rescued um i don't know the politics of all of this uh i think it's generally creep me out as weird as all that is the politics of the expectation of the politics of it like yeah people uh, you know, on, on cable news breathlessly, like, how is the president going to respond? And, and is he going to resonate with people? It's like, dude, the president is like number 75 in the chain of anyone who matters at all on this. And I mean, if you actually watch the coverage unfold and everything, it's, it's a wonderful object lesson in precisely that, that presidents matter less. Person who matters is the real uh, first responders, and I and I'm the following is not at all a slur on people who are normally called first responders, firefighters, and cops, and uh, coast guard people in particular who have been incredible. I mean, they're doing round the clock uh, her uh, helicopter uh, saves uh, as they did in Katrina. But the first responders is next door neighbor bro with a canoe <laughs> who like comes over. It's it, it, it's the Cajun Navy guys. Maybe they're like first and a half mm-hmm. uh, responders, and the. Stuff that those people are doing and also capturing on video or on their cam phones in a way that we didn't see the communications difference between this um, hurricane and Katrina is stunning and actually has saved. I I would be really interested to study it afterwards and see how many lives it saved. Just think about how many crazy stories that turned out not to be true were told about the Superdome because they didn't have any insider outside communication. And so everybody was like coming up with conspiracy theories, which then uh, including the, you know, the famous one about they're shooting helicopters and stuff, which there's no evidence that that ever happened. Uh, that delayed aid, delayed aid uh, coming in uh, and all this stuff. So the presidenting and the, the expectations of the presidenting, it's like, screw that. What this shows is you don't want any president or any FEMA or any governmental organization getting in the way of the real first and second responders who are doing absolutely amazing work right here. Thankfully, I haven't seen any evidence so far that people are being blocked in any meaningful way. Uh, I recall. Uh, sitting in a Fox green room 
watching them interview a Louisiana mayor in a place that was uh, getting beat up pretty bad. Uh, but he was out uh, giving the city's like surplus uh, petrol to more Cajun Navy guys so that they can go drive back out and, and help Louisiana. That's kind of what you do. Don't erect stupid uh, roadblocks uh, in the middle of all of this. But Ron, I, your science, your Johnny science over there. And uh, I was so I was on Mars, I mentioned. And this is inevitable because Mars is a big climate change guy. Um, but, you know, immediately says, as do people every time when something big happens, uh, says that this is uh, the intensity of this. The size of it is yet another uh, example or reason why uh, or you can blame it on climate change, that the hurricanes are getting bitter, bigger and all this stuff. So can you walk us through a little bit? Is that true? Is there what is the relationship with the climate getting warmer and this big ass storm or and, you know, the big ass storm in Sandy and Katrina, if you want, if those are the the, the go to ones, is there an observed phenomenon? I answered there um, that it was a cheap comparison because um, uh, Mars said that uh, isn't it funny? We had the eclipse. Scientists predict the eclipse. And now people don't believe that scientists when they say the global warming. Can you believe it? And I said, that's a cheap joke. It's a different style of predictive discussion here altogether. And the predictive climate models are a little bit screwy. They're kind of hard to pin down exactly but tell it walk us through relationship between climate science and hurricanes because people talk a lot of bollocks sure uh, it is the case that the, the climate computer models are all more or less uh, projecting that as the planet warms there should be at least more intense hurricanes probably fewer of them but more intense over time and the question is is that are are we seeing that in the data now and I've talked to a bunch of different scientists. I've read through a whole bunch of different uh, aspects of the peer-reviewed literature. And they frankly say, no, we can't find it there yet. We don't see any intensification going on in the Atlantic region at all. We don't see that the number of hurricanes is increasing or decreasing over time. And uh, basically, they're, they're saying the models tell us this will eventually happen, but we don't see it. There's something called the Accumulated Cyclone Energy Index, which basically, short, making it short, is basically a way of trying to add up all the power of all the hurricanes that occur in any particular area. And that one's been going down for 10 years in the Atlantic area. So it's not there. Uh, it may be there. We'll see if the models are right. But so far, there is no particular evidence that says that Harvey or Katrina or Sandy were all exacerbated by climate change. They may have been. But but the the data are so noisy that it's impossible to say for sure. And of course, what's happened is in the politicized science, anytime any catastrophe occurs, uh, weather occurs, somebody's going to stand up and say, "Well, it's consistent with climate change." Well, it's consistent also with no climate change. There's just that isn't really telling you what's going on. There are a lot of people working on what they call attribution of, of extreme weather events, uh, trying to figure out how much of a weather event we could attribute to climate change. How much worse is it because of climate change? But very specifically in the case of, of floods and hurricanes, there's really little data on that at this point. We just don't have enough information. We have seen this this theme come up a bunch of times. I mean, Kellyanne Conway and Chris Cuomo over at CNN had a uh, not major dust up about this, but, but a little bit of a back and forth. The One of the themes that's coming out of this and it's not a discussion just to have now, but certainly in the weeks and months as we move forward, is whether or not what happened in Harvey and why it's happening and why these storms happen open up 
a discussion about the role of climate change. Is the president, is the administration open to that conversation? Chris, we're trying to help the people whose lives are literally underwater, and you want to have a conversation about climate change. I mean, that is, I'm, I'm not going to engage in that right now because I work for a president and a vice president and a country that is very focused on helping the millions of affected uh, Texans and, God forbid, Louisianans, if, if, if it ends up. Um, Imagine if we could find ways there. to reduce the number of these storms. Imagine if we could figure out why a hundred year storm seems to happen every other year. Isn't it the case that these storms are happening more frequently? Not in the current data at all. In fact, there were more hurricanes back in the middle of the 20th century than have occurred lately. There was an uptick at the beginning of, of the 21st century in the Atlantic again, and then it's gone down. And it, it, it's very hard to predict these things. I mean, uh, part of it has to do with uh, things like uh, the Atlantic uh, Ocean has a, a, a 40 to 60 year period where the water's warmer or colder. And at the moment, uh, it had flipped to a warm phase, and there's some thought that it will soon be flipping to a cool phase, which means there'll be even fewer hurricanes if the models are right. So, again, there are a lot of people working on this, and we may get to that point. We, by I mean the people I'll be quoting as scientists someday, uh, will get to the point of being able to say, well, yes, we can definitely find the trends in the data. But the trends in the data don't exist yet. Uh, and just to uh, to dumb this down so that I can understand it, the theory, which hasn't yet been data-fied, um, uh, <laughs> re- relies on, hey, look, globe's getting warmer, water's getting warmer, stuff that used to be ice is melting, and therefore that means there's going to be more material for hurricanes to use. Is that right? Right. Basically, what you want is uh, hurricanes spin up when the, uh, uh, the temperature of the water is over 79 degrees Fahrenheit. And you have to have that as a threshold in order to get a hurricane. There are a lot of other things that you need, but assuming assume that's going on, then yes, you'll, ha- you'll likely have more hurricanes, though there are other ways around that. The other thing is, of course, is a warmer atmosphere holds more moisture. So when you do have a hurricane, you're probably going to have more rain. But again, those things, they're, they're, these are all very good theoretical projections, but the data have not yet supported that. Now, in terms of policy here, the things that I'm seeing uh, the Trump administration getting knocked for is that they have uh, lessened the Obama administration emphasis on thinking or uh, causing people to consider climate change when they're uh, looking at something through a national defense perspective, perhaps some infrastructure things as well. Um, You wrote a a great piece, and we always do this perennially at Reason, talking about the uh, super perverse uh, incentives, federal incentives, particularly having to do with uh, home insurance in flood areas. Um, this is also true of fire areas like in Southern California and Malibu and places like that. Um, as you look out at the applied policies that exist here, what sticks out at you as something that could that should change in order to create a world that will be less vulnerable to uh, this uh, obvious uh, or you know not so obvious, but just to big big ass storms? Well, don't build on a floodplain. Don't build in a coastal area where hurricanes come in. The problem is in 1968, the federal government decided that 
uh, they were going to create the National Flood Insurance Program. It's $25 billion in the red now, and there's no way for it to get out of it without taxpayers bailing it out. There's just simply no way to do it. And now that Houston has occurred, it's probably going to be, well, uh, it'll go through its $30 billion uh, debt uh, ceiling that it has. So that it's, it's simply a failed government program. And what it does is it, it subsidizes people with cheap insurance to build expensive houses and businesses in floodplains and on coastal areas. Why are we doing that? The market wasn't broken in 68. The insurance market was telling people, don't build there because we're not going to insure you. If you build there, your, your stuff is going to get washed away and you'll lose your business and your house. And instead, the government said, nah, we're going to supply you with some cash. Go ahead, build there. So what we've ended up doing is encouraging people to live in areas where they put their lives and their property at risk increasingly, and it's just stupid. So what we need to do is to change the flood insurance program to a system where it's rational, where people will actually pay the premiums for the risk that they're bearing instead of imposing it on taxpayers. There's a related issue. We have, in fact, seen disasters be more costly. That is not necessarily a consequence of more severe storms, but has a lot to do with the incentives that we're creating for folks with programs like this. Right. It's not only that, though. It is if you there's a procedure if you normalize things that basically if you try to to figure out what uh, what storms in the past would have destroyed if the amount of property currently existing in place uh, were, were, were there then, what we find is that, in fact, the damages have not been increasing. Huh. Okay. As a percentage of the GDP, they're just not increasing. What's happened is we're putting more property in harm's way. And also uh, talk briefly about uh, the lives lost as a percentage, as, uh, according to uh, these kind of natural c- catastrophes. They've been going down dramatically over time. So, I mean, unfortunately, because of the, the screw-ups uh, of all kinds of things, there were 1,800 people who lost their lives at Katrina. But the basic trend in the United States has been uh, for decades for fewer and fewer people to die in floods and in hurricanes. Post-Katrina has been about 18 people a year. And uh, unfortunately, it's ticking up here in Houston, apparently. But again, it, it's going way, way down. Why? Because people have much better infrastructure. We have much better uh, response systems. People get more warnings. I mean, it, it, everything is better because we're wealthier and have more information at, at our fingertips. And as uh, to your point earlier about the Cajun Navy and so forth, so forth this kind of uh, information infrastructure is allowing people to take care of themselves without the government getting in the way much more easily now. And we should just let more of that happen. Fun uh, fact about that 1968 program that Camille will enjoy, uh, besides the fact that I was born in 1968, so it's a very important year uh, and everyone was being killed right and left. But uh, it was partly a response to the post-Martin Luther King assassination riots that went across the country and killed scores of people. It was targeted at inner city neighborhoods Hmm. because insurance companies wouldn't insure in these neighborhoods that were given up for loss, like, you know, downtown D.C. along 14th Street and uh, where it's now all super booming. Um, That was you could see the the damage from space, how badly that was uh, looked after the riots and insurance companies didn't want to go. And so they created this in part as we will be the insurer of last resort in distressed areas. And over time, what distressed areas meant was Malibu. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, it's, right. it's, it's a phenomenon. Right. I mean, let's, let's face it. Who lives on uh, at the lakeside and on coasts? Poor people? Well, not so much. 
No, of course not. So basically <laughs> what you're doing is you're subsidizing rich people to have a nice water view. The water views are nice. Well, yeah, they are. Yeah. And, and I'm sure the taxpayers who are paying for this would love to be able to go visit them. Of course, you're right about this. Of course, we are right about this and talking about it. It makes rational sense. And there are people who are trapped in their attic as we speak underwater in Beaumont, Texas and and greater Houston in an area that's like larger than the state of Connecticut or some damn thing uh, where all the water is. And are you seriously going to like lecture them about you're getting too much too many uh, subsidies here from the federal government? Like it's actually very, very difficult. People pay attention to these stories precisely when there's a catastrophe. And that's when their appetite for hearing about perverse incentives and government waste is at its all-time lowest. I understand. The thing here is, is that what we should take away from this, and the flood insurance program, by the way, is coming up for reauthorization at the end of September. What should be taken away from this is, fine, it's terrible that you people, unfortunately, were encouraged to build in these areas. You probably didn't even know that that was, is what was going on. But here's what the deal is, is that you get bailed out this time, but you don't get to rebuild in a floodplain. Here's the money. Your house is paid for. Go somewhere else where, it's, where, where you don't get inundated in the future. I don't think that – I think you're right. There's no way to basically say, you know, tough luck to, to our fellow citizens. That would be uh, cruel and unusual since they got duped into moving to these places in the first place. But certainly don't allow people to rebuild in, 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 in areas that flood like this. It's, it's, you're, you're endangering them, and you've obviously – uh, wasting a lot of, of money on properties that are not going to be sustained. I mean, to be clear, they can build there. You're fine with that as long as they pay the risk premium. Sure. Right. Absolutely. You can, it, fine. If you would like to do that, that is not a problem with me. I just don't think that the rest of us have to pay for you to do that. Another thing, and, and if this is too far afield from what you have been paying attention to so far uh, with uh, Hurricane Harvey, uh, go ahead and, and cut me off of the knees, but Houston is famous for being the city that has no zoning, right? And so uh, what people uh, will commonly say is that because Houston has no planning, they planned badly for uh, water drainage. Uh, and there was a, a great tweet storm, and I forget the, the progenitor of it, but a Houston resident who obviously has some uh, concept about engineering was explaining how uh, the freeway system there is actually pretty crucial to uh, drainage, like the drainage happens right along it, which makes the whole evacuation idea pretty kind of dicey because <laughs> there's a whole lot of people who live there and they're living along uh, an area where I guess in Hurricane Rita, a lot of people got trapped in their cars and it's a, and it's a bad thing. But from what you know of Houston and what you know of that kind of engineering of the area, bayous and levees and whatnot, uh, do you have any like insight that you can shed on the way that Houston prepared itself for a thing that, as you pointed out at the top, periodically happens to Houston and the rest of coastal Texas? Uh, again, part of the problem would be is that here, here's one of the things that, that flood insurance does. Not everybody buys it, right? Even if they're living in an area that might be inundated, uh, they, they don't buy it. But what happens is, is that because some people do buy it, uh, the, the developers uh, take that as a sign, as a matter of fact, and people and other people who are thinking about this at all take this as a sign is, well, if the, if the government is subsidizing insurance, then if the inundation does come, they're going to bail people out with emergency aid anyway. So let's go ahead and build there. So there, there's that bad incentive too. 
So in the specific case with Houston, uh, I should point out that the highways and the drainage system were not built by private industry in the first place. Uh, so it's kind of hard to blame private industry in that regard. It is the case that when developers were, as I understand it anyway, when developers came up with their plans and so forth, they all they put in some, quote, mitigation efforts like drainage ponds, et cetera, et cetera. But it turns out that most of them were um, underdesigned. And what people should be able to do, I suspect, is, is that to the degree that they made any promises to the people who bought that property, they should be able to be sued. The Associated Press is reporting that the House could act pretty soon, as early as next week, in order to provide relief money in the aftermath of Hurricane Harvey. Uh, but we did see a lot of money uh, go to 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 deal with uh, Hurricane Katrina afterwards, which, uh, according to this AP report, was the largest uh, with recovery costs around $110 billion, um, according right. to the Congressional Budget Office, and Superstorm Sandy um, in 2012, which uh, had about $54 billion in federal relief. Um, I mentioned both of those things, not just for the sake of comparison, but also because Ted Cruz and Chris Christie are at odds because Cruz uh, notoriously now um, and according to some hypocritically opposed monies being given to New Jersey, saying specifically this $50 billion bill that's filled with unrelated pork, two thirds of that bill has nothing to do with Sandy. Um, now, this has been subsequently fact checked by Washpo, who's given uh, Cruz three Pinocchios. Um, and the issue here appears to be that the money was being allocated, but according to the CBO scoring, a pretty significant percentage, something like 80 percent of the money that was allocated uh, in this particular bill was not spent straight away. Only about 20 percent was spent in like the first year. The rationale from the Washington Post standpoint is most of it is going to things that are related to the storm. It's just not being spent straight away. I mean, would you say that that that's that this is a fair characterization? It's a mixed bag, of course. Part of it, to the extent that some of the money went to the homeowners to rebuild in floodplains or on coastal areas that were hit, obviously that's a reverse incentive. You should have uh, basically bought the people out and said, well, you know, you can't build there again uh, because we're not going to pay for it. If you do build there, you're not going to, you know, this is the last payment. But a lot of it, in the in the case of Sandy, for example, uh, went also to infrastructure that is supposed to prevent this kind of thing from happening to New York and New Jersey and Long Island again. So t- to the extent that you think that, it, that the federal government should be building infrastructures to prevent future losses like that, then it's not, you know, pork. I guess is is the question. Uh, I I will be interested to see if uh, Senator Cruz is saying, you know, uh, there's this thing called the Ike Dyke. There was a hurricane called Ike that uh, swept through the region. Uh, uh, I believe in what was it, 2010, something like that. Uh, inundated the area again, really devastated Galveston, and now the uh, the, the the congressional de- delegation has been urging that the federal government spend five billion dollars to build a dike to prevent storm surges from going into Galveston Bay again. So I'll be interested to see if Senator Cruz is in favor of that kind of infrastructure uh, expenditure in uh, the South Texas region, uh, the same sort of thing that happened with Sandy or not. Uh, I suspect he will be, and he will just keep saying the same thing over and over. Uh, Sandy was 70% pork. Ours is 100% pork-free. I don't believe it. As a general rule, Congress 
their main jobs uh, in order to get reelected is to never vote for anything uh, at all uh, that might be remotely controversial and to uh, therefore find the most ironcladdedly non-controversial thing to vote for money for their troops, relief money for our our uh, our uh, distressed homeowners who are underwater and this kind of stuff so that they can sneak anything that they want to uh, into that. That is a perennial. This is not true just for the government. Uh, ProPublica has has uh, been doing some incredible reporting on uh, kind of what a shit show the American Red Cross is and what how they have responded to previous recent hurricanes in moments of high stress. They've got a great brand. People immediately send them money. Barack Obama tweeted them out, like, donate here. You know, they got all this money for Haiti and built six houses, <laughs> literally like six houses. Um, so there's scamsters come out when there's a guaranteed revenue stream. You're going to have scam politicians. You're going to have scam private people, scam charities everywhere. It's an ugly and terrible thing. The other thing I would just quickly add is that the uh, national political fiscal conversation is so different in 2017 than it was in 2012 and 2013, particularly because back then you had a minority House of Representatives run by Republicans against the Democratic establishment. And so then they were bringing up stuff like debt ceilings that we can't do this without like the. Attacking, tackling long-term entitlements, sure. all these sure. types yeah. of things. Those conversations ain't happening right now. It was a very different conversation. You're, you're correct, Matt, because there were actually two pieces of legislation when the Sandy Relief Bill was going through Congress, one of which said, well, yeah, we're going to give them some money, but I, I think this is so important that we should pay for it. We'll actually have to have some cuts in order to allocate these funds. And in Ted Cruz's defense, the actual CBO score, it looks like it was 30%. Um, of the of this money was supposed to be spent by September of 2014 um, and 80% of the money by September of 2017. And, you know, the, the actual quote that I see from Ted Cruz back in 2013 and, you know, more recently, he actually just said this is all pork. It wasn't even related to the storm. Um, but in 2013, he said two thirds of this spending is not remotely emergency. The Congressional Budget Office estimated only 30 percent of the authorized funds would be spent in the next 20 months and over a billion dollars will be spent as late as 2021. Um, That's kind of a big deal. I mean, that's a lot of guaranteed cash. It certainly seems like the sort of thing where Congress could have, in fact, said, "Okay, here's the emergency dough that you need in order to tackle the problem today. And yeah, since we still get paid to do this job, we will continue to reevaluate the situation and determine what we need to pay for and what's appropriate for federal taxpayers to pay for and what the states ought to pony up and pay for later. Yeah, we'll continue to deal with the situation and uh, address the cost as we go. Like I would say, I'm just waiting to see if Ted Cruz is going to uh, approve for, uh, vote for a bill that's going to say to put in a lot of quote infrastructure, the sort of way that Sandy uh, the Sandy uh, payments went or, out, or more interestingly, veto such a um, not veto but vote uh, against yeah. such a bill. <laughs> yeah, uh, I yeah. can't I can't imagine that would play very well in Texas. Uh, before we let you go, Ron, what are you looking for as a science nerd? Uh, about this hurricane, the relief, the drainage, whatever, uh, or the next one that there's, we got a new one coming off the, the coming barreling towards Cuba or something. Now, what are you looking at in the next week or two that, that has your particular interest or you think that we should be interested in? 
Uh, with regard to weather, regard to Hurricane Harvey, and then just you know disasters and things. Yeah, I mean, th- there's the there are the Naomi Kleins of the world who are saying this is the moment. This is when we yeah. ought to be talking about climate change right now. I mean, Ron, are, I'll ask the question straight out, and perhaps I should have asked at the front end so people could know whether or not they ought to trust you. Are you a climate change denier? By no means. I believe that uh, humanity is in fact changing the climate by burning fossil fuels and letting up the atmosphere with carbon dioxide. Uh, and, and that in the long run, if we keep doing it, it's going to become a significant problem for humanity. So we should be doing something about it. That being said, that's, then we have to get into the policy details of what that something should be. And that's, uh, of course, where the fight comes. What I love about Naomi is uh, Naomi Klein is that she puts it right out there in her book, This Changes Everything. The great thing about climate change is it gives us an excuse to enact the progressive agenda that we've been wanting for decades. And she just flatly says that. We can finally put capitalism in the grave. Well, that's one policy response. I have a different one, I think. I think we can utilize markets and human ingenuity to solve the problem over the course of this century. But perhaps we should have a longer conversation about that. Isn't it funny? Didn't she come up with a phrase, disaster capitalism? And she's mm. talking about disaster socialism. Shock doctrine. Correct. Well, it, Correct. I mean, if, if they're going to do it, she can't play fair. She can't play fair. Well, Ron, uh, thank you so much for joining us. We, uh, we appreciate it. Thank you for, for giving us some context and helping us uh, wrap our hands around this. And we didn't even get to talk about Melania's shoes, which I'm sure you thought were totally appropriate for that weather and, and should not have been criticized. I thought that that was a great way to keep her heels dry. Yeah. See? <laughs> Damn right. 22-inch heels. All right, Ron. Thanks, man. All right. You take care now. Bye. So, Matthew. 22-inch uh, heels are massive, uh, massive heels. I'm not going to complain about Melania Trump. People want so much to yell about things and to make everything about uh politics and Trump and all their stupid things and the Twitters and the social medias, the strain that people have gone under to uh, to make, you know, uh, Trump's uh, disaster response, the worst thing that they've ever seen in their lives uh, is a little bit irksome. It's like he said firsthand. He met with people firsthand. He only met with people secondhand. It's like, okay, you know, you're right. But can we have like a pecking order of complaints here and recognize where that one uh, ends up? Uh, uh, People uh, need to get new uh, habits, I think. Yeah. I I mean, uh, all of the a lot of the critiques, um, it seems, are are, are pretty are pretty silly. Um, I I do know that on Friday when he uh, was giving some remarks, he made some sort of weird quip about uh, Sheriff Joe Arpaio's uh, uh, actual pardoning, saying that he was doing it on this day and his expectation was that somehow it would get better ratings because of the storm. Yeah. I think he meant exactly the opposite thing uh, and perhaps was was going for a joke, but that was in, in, fairly, in fairly poor taste. But I'm not the sort of person that gets all bent out of shape about that. But Matt, it seems like there is... Related news, another famous lawman uh, from Wisconsin. Was it Sheriff Clark? Yeah. Who has resigned actually today from Damn. his current gig. Um, we do not actually know um, what Sheriff Clark is likely to do next, but there are reports that he might take on a role with the Trump administration. He's been a, a longtime Trump supporter and an enthusiastic supporter of the Trump administration's policies when it comes to criminal justice, um, i.e. what has largely been 
unwinding some of the reforms, if one can call them that, that the uh, that the Obama administration put into place. I mean, Matt, what do you what do you make of this particular change? Um, how do you think it relates to the Arpaio pardoning to the extent that it does? I mean, they they really are kind of materially different things, um, but these are two law enforcement tough on crime personalities who are attracted to the Trump administration, unsurprisingly. They're like the, they're the two most notorious slash mediagenic sheriffs in the country, notorious for serially violating civil liberties, abusing prisoners, laughing about it, depriving them of water, handcuffing uh, women in during childbirth, both of them did this in their in their uh, prisons um, and being uh, kind of famous for it and defying people. Um, this is nothing new in uh, in in Trumpdom. Um, this was the person who campaigned or ran against a bunch of Republicans is definitely the person who celebrated his victory or ratified it at the Republican National Convention. Um, he was your avatar for the Blue Lives Matter. <laughs> why, why are you looking at me like that? No, so no, it's, it's, it's true. He that, did that's, say that. That's, that's, that was his yeah. thing. I, I, Matt, I remember sitting with you at the RNC when Clark came on and like we, we were both in a state of just perpetual boredom until that moment because it was so startling. Yeah, and, and Trump's speech... Uh, again, there's this, just been too much stuff has, has gone on, but Trump's speech and also a lot of the tenor of the Republican uh, convention, but his acceptance speech, it was a, a pretty dark storm of law and order. Okay. We're going to restore it on beginning January 20th. That's it. They're done. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to solve crime and it's going to be these guys. Um, and again, it's not just that they're, uh, bad human beings, um, you know, David Clark is, is uh, famous for uh, wearing a bunch of medals that, that aren't true. <laughs> like, <laughs> although the reason headline on it is, is pretty amazing. Uh, David Clark resigned to spend more time with his fake medals. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, that's pretty good. It's, it's not it's not yeah. so bad. Um, but uh, they are like creatures from the Black Lagoon. And I mean that in a racist that's racist. Way. Yeah, um, that's uh, good. Good of you, though. When it comes to all of the worst instincts that Republicans and conservatives have had about law enforcement. Sheriff Joe Arpaio, uh, a lot of people want to imagine that this is just kind of a Trump thing. Yeah, okay, yeah, he, he made the prisoners wear pink underwear. Uh, he uh, tried to enforce illegal immigration, although he was told specifically not to by cops, and doing this by pulling people over in their cars when they looked Mexican. By And you do that by driving a crappy car and being kind of brown uh, and detaining them for a long period of time. Uh, doing all kinds of things like this, again, in, in direct contempt and laughing about it and saying, I'm going to c continue to be in contempt of this. Sheriff Joe Apario existed on the national scene long before Donald Trump uh, was doing anything. Mm -hmm. People were kissing his ring in Republican politics, local Arizona politics and national politics for 20 fucking years. Do you know whose campaign um, Sheriff Joe Arpaio in 2007 was made the honorary state chairman of Mitt Romney's? Let's let's hear a lot about how Mitt Romney is the conscience of the party. Mitt Romney is part of the reason why the party has no conscience, Ooh. particularly on 
immigration. Mitt Romney ran against Giuliani in 2008, who was the presumptive frontrunner for almost a year, um, specifically on the issue of sanctuary cities, because New York back then and to this day still was a quote unquote sanctuary city, which is a terrible term that more or less means that the local police uh, officer isn't going to rat out every single Mexican looking dude to the feds um, automatically. They're not going to share that information because they realized and Giuliani in 1996 was eloquent on this point, even as 20 years later, he became uh, a MAGA hat wearing uh, clown pants for Trump at his various Phoenix rallies. Mm-hmm. Um, but back then, it's like we won't get any cooperation from entire communities with the police department. That's not going to help us solve crime or make things safe. Romney went after him as a total sanctuary city's terrible sellout uh, in 2007 and 2008. That's part of the reason why Giuliani went down. Romney went after John McCain for daring to think about comprehensive immigration reform at the same time. Romney became a player. Because of the immigration issue, he's the one who, of course, in uh, 2012, when he got the nomination, uh, uh, was talking about self-deportation and this kind of stuff to the point where in November 26th or so of 2012, there was an interview at Newsmax with one Donald J. Trump saying that the reason Romney lost more than any other thing was because of his maniacal comments about immigration, mm-hmm. um, that there was so mean and cheap and nasty uh, and gave the uh, uh, Mexicans, our good Mexican friends, nothing to uh, to hope for. So Romney introduced a lot of that stuff or helped ratify that. Sheriff Joe has been this awful person for a really long time. Rick Perry went and kissed his ass. All these different people did. The Bushes, even to some degree, sucked up to him. Some of the only people who did did not uh, were John McCain for the most part because he's always um, hated the Republican base in Arizona and uh, <laughs> uh, you know half for good for good reason and half for bad reason uh, and Jeff Flake who Arpaio is making completely insincere noises about uh, possibly uh, trying to run against at age eighty five in the Senate um, uh, I think it's that's not going to happen but these trends and this sort of like tough on crime this sort of this like we feel like we're in 1982, the way these guys talk, Clark and Arpaio both, and and also Trump. Um, we've learned so many things since then. We've jailed so many people, millions of people since then. We've ruined so many lives with the drug war, um, with incarceration, with asset forfeiture, and all these terrible uh, things since then. And we have, in those two guys, who don't have a lot of power, um, but uh, Jeff Sessions, who does have a lot of power. And let's also just think for a second about the message, the totally crystal clear message that Trump gave by the Arpaio pardon, which is this. He said, this is a quote, Sheriff Joe was, you know, the victim of a witch hunt or, you know, unfair uh, 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 contempt order for doing his job. That to Trump is doing your job. If that means you are in contempt of a court order that says you are serially violating the constitutional rights of your local citizens, but you're doing it in the name of being tough on crime, law and order, blue lives matter, and cracking down on illegal immigration, we're not just going to look the other way. We're going to celebrate you. We're going to elevate you. All right. This is nastiness. This is idiocy. This is going to hurt so many innocent people. And this is exactly who Trump has been and will be. And this is one of the areas is that he has the most power. If you want to think about a reason for him to be odious, it ain't fucking Melania's shoes. It's this, his crime policy and his utter disdain for civil liberties of all human beings. And the and the chief example of that, I guess, this week um, is the fact that the Trump administration is 
repealing some of the Obama era restrictions on military equipment being sold to police departments. It's all fairly consistent. I imagine that having spokespersons like Sheriff Clark on their team uh, will give them additional opportunity to to try to get some additional mileage out of this. Um, Since you sort of looked back retrospectively, it is worth mentioning that this program had existed for some time, but we actually did see, and it's hard to say why this happened, um, but a major increase in procurement of equipment between like, say, 2010 um, and it peaked in 2014 transfers from the military in terms of this surplus equipment, some of this surplus equipment being brand spanking new, um, being transferred to various police departments around the country at massive, massive discounts. I believe this is the same program which uh, the Government Accountability Office, like earlier this year, there was a a fake uh, police department that they set up that was able to procure like $1.2 million worth weapons from this same program. So now the prohibitions and restrictions that were placed on by the Obama administration are being repealed. Uh, But again, most of the surge in spending The surge in actual allocation of equipment happened under Obama's watch. And it only tailed off in 2015. I just want to say that allocation is uh, now my... Did I say allocation or allocation? I don't know. I'll take allocation. You said allocation. But that has lots of new potential uh, meanings right up there with uh, with journalos. Um, No, it, it became unpopular, sadly... Only because of Ferguson, which was this moment when people were looking around and saying, why is this little town looking like Baghdad right now? Uh, And that was when uh, you had the biggest kind of realization of a career's worth of work by our friend Radley Balco. He'd been talking about the militarization of police. Reason's been writing about this since forever. And, you know, like we have with civil asset forfeiture. And it was really nice of the world to kind of start catching up on those issues in 2014 and 2015. And. I'm happier rather than unhappier that the Obama administration made some preliminary moves on a few of these things as a result of that sudden flashbang of of awareness that happened as a result of Ferguson. I lament that the momentum for that as a national topic receded since then um, on a local level. Interesting. A lot of that kind of stuff is still going on. The uh, the uh, criminal justice reform movement is is by no means uh, dead. Sure. On an, uh, a state and local level, because uh, you've you've flipped a lot of police, not just in the wearing of cameras, because one of the things that's done is has gotten rid of a lot of frivolous lawsuits against them by, um, uh, you know, defense attorneys who are always looking to shake down a local police department. Um, but uh, there's just a recognition that. Things like, you know, bite mark analysis and this, there's a lot of junk science out there that people are using to convict the wrong people. And cops want to convict the right guy for the most part. Cops are uh, are pretty good. So some of that uh, is happening. Uh, but uh, uh, it's it's uh, it's awful that that seems to have been stopped in its tracks on a national level. There are a variety of bills that are out there right now. Mm-hmm. Some Republicans are signing up to things having to do with civil asset forfeiture. They feel like they have some momentum on their side. But Republicans uh, and enough Americans uh, chose the person who very, very specifically ran against all of that Mm -hmm. very, very strongly, doesn't believe uh, even a a tiny little bit in the direction of that. These are the kinds of uh, reforms we need. And uh, that's that. A few things. One, I mean, with respect to these, this, the 1033 program, um, I mean, the the kind of growth that we saw in 2008, it was like thirty three million dollars worth of equipment being transferred by 2014. It's seven hundred and eighty seven million dollars. 
dollars uh, in equipment value uh, transferred that year. I mean, that is an enormous, enormous leap. Um, the second thing, though, is with respect to the reforms that are being achieved and that are desired uh, around sort of forensic science. I mean, the people who are opposing a lot of these reforms and you mentioned police officers want to get the right guy. I'm, I suspect they do. I think they want as many tools as possible to get that right guy. I'm, and, so, yeah, and, I'm talking and, about a minority. Yeah, still. Believe so they, me. Believe they want me. they want the forensic science tools and they, they do oppose um, a lot of those reform efforts. And relatedly, I mean, some of the people who actually re- opposed early efforts to get rid of the 1033 program were, in fact, congressional Democrats um, and Certainly some members of the Congressional Black Caucus were among them. So it's it's correct to point out that this is another area in which the the energy that was created by the Black Lives Matter movement was effective in creating a policy change. Um, certainly not the, be, the sort of policy, the beginnings, change, of, the beginning a, of yeah. a policy change, at least from in terms of what the executive branch was doing here. Again, the reason why it's so easy for the Trump administration to simply undo what the Obama administration did is because there wasn't any sort of legislation passed. Um, and so far as I can tell, there didn't ever seem to be a real meaningful effort from on the part of the Obama administration to do something about this from a legislative standpoint. It was mostly I've got a pen. I've got a phone. I'm going to institute a, a sweeping change, which is basically just me saying I won't do this anymore but we'll see what happens with the next guy or gal who manages to get elected. And it turns out he has a pen and a phone, too. Um, <laughs> there's a mindset issue here, too. Well, first, I, I want to uh, because this is the, the, the thing that you do when you come back after a Bill Maher appearance is that you uh, now that everyone's safely out of the room, you can uh, fight fights that you decided not to weigh in on uh, <laughs> because it's kind of hard doing one, one, one against four or five. But I only had really one of those this past time. I could have scored better points on Afghanistan, but whatever. But Paul Begala, um, who's almost six feet tall. I know that sounds crazy to anyone who's seen him on television. Like you look at him and you think, ah, a little mouse. You know, he's 5'11", much taller than you expect. So we're talking about God knows what wedge issues. And he's, you know, when I first worked for Bill Clinton back in 1991, 1992, he said, we don't have wedge issues. We have, and here he puts his fingers together. We have web issues, issues that bring people together. Um, And that's really what we're looking for here. Not this divisive stuff. And it just wasn't the moment to come in with an overhand cross right. Um, But I'm old enough to remember those days. Mm -hmm. And there was the mother of all wedge issues or let's say third way politics issues that Clinton very notoriously embraced as part of his campaign to be a new Democrat. And that was being tougher on crime than even Republicans were. That was his wedge issue, not his web issue. The 2014 post-Ferguson Black Lives Matter belated recognition of uh, arguments that libertarians have been making, not just for 20 years, but 40 years. All of that was an undoing in part of a thing that really the Clintons have a lot of fingerprints on right there. He's the one who signed into law the Anti-Immigration and Effective Death Penalty Act of 1996, which expanded drastically the number of crimes that you can kill uh, uh, people uh, for illegally by the state. He was bragging constantly about how many tens and hundreds of thousands of cops he helped put in the street. His speech on immigration, which we have uh, referenced before at the 1996 Democratic Convention, what you could cut and paste into 
Donald Trump at the 2016 Republican convention. Sure. And yep. the only thing different would be just maybe some of the diction. There wouldn't be a lot of believe me's and that kind of <laughs> stuff. But it's the same. You know, we have no border. We're not really a country anymore. Drug runners are just coming in and out and murdering who they want. These yeah. gangbangers. I mean, it was off the hook. At the time, it was a fence, not a wall. Whatever. Yeah. Um, there are beginnings to be a, um, a yeah, it was a, a fence. But uh, – <laughs> So all of this happened and was super, super heinous. They got rid of all kinds of uh, legal protections for people, not just who are illegal immigrants, but who are uh, uh, legal uh, immigrants or here uh, temporarily. You could have going into an airport if you didn't have your full green card. All you had to do was was have one border guard or someone at an airport. This was notorious in Portland, Oregon, who didn't like your looks and boop. Yeah. No entry visa for five years on your passport. And you can't uh, you can't at all appeal that. That was something that was introduced under Clinton. So we had 20 years, this tough on crime bullshit. And the legacy of all of that, I don't think Barack Obama woke up in the morning and decided, yeah, I'm that guy. Um, uh, although he did enforce uh, uh, medical marijuana raids and all that. Sure stuff, to just a, a, a baffling and gigantic degree in his first term. Mm hmm. But it was more that Clinton created politics, created, helped create a politics where Democrats, um, not just the ones who had their hands dirty and all this, like Joe Biden, who helped create the office of the drugs are among many, many crimes. Um, uh, but uh, the Democrats that came after were scared to touch any of that because they thought that the politics that Clinton created was that you had to be tough on crime. And so. Uh, you know, one of the reasons why uh, that I feel such a sense of disappointment in Obama is that you had the the feeling like mm -hmm. his heart or his mind was in the right place on these issues. And he only began to get courage in 2014 and 2015 on criminal justice reform. And so that's when he started doing a lot of commutations and these things. And the things that he did then and that Eric Holder did, they were real and they affected lives. And it's just so frustrating because if you had started to make a brave politics about that in 2009 instead, um, it would be much harder to undo. And on that, uh, I, the cowardice is on Obama, but a lot of the uh, the initial broad creation of both laws and politics and traditions within the modern Democratic Party are a Bill Clinton like specialty. And to right. say that this was the man who eschewed uh, wedge issues and that it was all about the web is like, yeah, tell it to Ricky Ray. Rackham, yeah, yeah. Well, I guess within within the Democratic Party is the is the key phrase there, because that it, it's interesting. I mean, there's something about uh, there's something about the way that democracy works. The fact that the beliefs about criminal justice, the fact that you would judge harshly someone who was trying to explain to you, America, that maybe these policies aren't the right policies. Maybe if we're concerned about crime in our communities, the appropriate response isn't to create, you know, a, 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 the three strikes and you're out policy or to institute that maybe maybe the right thing to do in a particular circumstance isn't to and this isn't Clinton, but to have disparate sentences for crack versus powder cocaine because you are more concerned about crack. This is what people thought was the right thing to do. This is democracy at work in a way, and it is reflecting the sensibilities of the American people. Um, and part of the question here, and, and this is something that we talk about a lot these days, leadership, political leadership, having a leader who is um, helping to, to inform the American people, to tell them uh, – tell them hard truths the way Donald Trump uh, apparently was trying to with respect to Afghanistan um, when he leveled with the American people. And he gave them he gave them that 
quote unquote real talk. And I say quote unquote because I think that the argument isn't a particular good one that we ought to be doubling down on Afghanistan again for the th- for the third administration um, and not the third time. Um, why is it that the policy with respect to foreign policy, doing unpopular things in the realm of foreign policy, um, where both Barack Obama and Donald Trump seemingly, um, not seemingly, explicitly did things that they ran in opposition to um, in terms of deepening America's sort of foreign entanglements. And with Barack Obama in particular, a guy who undoubtedly knew more about these issues when it comes to criminal justice reform didn't have the courage to actually live out the policies that he seemed to understand. He he knew about the deficiencies of, say, forensic science. He had the PCAST commission, which did this, which conducted this massive investigation and looked at all of these various categories of forensic science that turn out to be total nonsense and didn't do anything about it. Loretta Lynch said thanks, but no thanks once the actual report was delivered to her, did nothing. And even when the president finally did start to do things post Ferguson in 2015, still this sort of flaky administrative paper pushing. Yeah, we're not going to do that anymore. All nonsense. None of it was particularly weighty. And you're correct. It did. Commutations are meaningful. It is good to be out of jail rather than in jail. But I just I don't understand why you take one unpopular position and not the other unpopular position. I suppose part of it is when you are deciding to commit military forces, that there is supposed to be some sort of political upside to that, that you're showing strength and resilience there, Um, fighting a war, even if it's unpopular because it's the right thing to do. And you're showing strength as commander in chief. And there isn't any similar upside when it comes to, say, criminal justice reform and saying that the appropriate way to deal with, say, someone who wants to purchase some narcotic that is illegal um, in a state um, is to throw them in jail versus maybe this shouldn't be illegal being a potential approach to, to addressing this conversation, there's, this there's, concern. There's a lot of different uh, bits that I want to get at there. I think one broad potential explanation, stab at an explanation, is that um, – I mean, it's this this bedevils uh, when, you know, libertarians, when they talk to their conservative friends who are otherwise libertarian on everything else, they're libertarian on everything else until someone's got a gun and is shooting somebody, mm-hmm. um, a, a cop or a soldier, especially. Then it's like, screw you guys. I'm on whatever they need. I'm on their side. And you peacenik hippies here uh, go uh, hang out at your leftist uh, cocktail parties. Um, there's something to. Um, life and death and the people who are our representatives in some ways in a fight against life and death who make that incredible voluntary decision to uh, I will do what I think is defending the country or defending the city, protecting the peace and doing all this kind of stuff. And I can get shot at at any second. We have, I think, a healthy respect for that, but in a way that I think uh, – both can warp judgments and also terrify politicians um, would add on Obama in particular in Afghanistan, as opposed to criminal justice reform. <clears throat> he campaigned on Iraq was the dumb war, but Afghanistan right. was the, the right smart war. one. That's, That's right. the one that we really needed to, to do on. So at least it was consistent with that. I think presidents in general, 
And, you know, we're on our fourth consecutive, more or less inexperienced foreign policy president who ran and did better than expected in part because they promised a more humble foreign policy than their competitors. Four in a row we've had mm-hmm. that can be described that way. And all four end up uh, being different flavors of interventionists much more than how they originally campaigned. Mm-hmm. Um, I imagine that there is at play a what happens when the rube from Arkansas or from, you know, uh, reality television or from community organizing suddenly gets those reports in the morning, feels the awesome responsibility of whatever, but maybe feels a little bit intellectually overmatched by the people who've been paying attention to this for a long time, whether they're in the military themselves, which people kind of tend to um, uh and get a little jock sniffy about uh, how uh, how you know uh, wise and powerful these guys are, or who've just been foreign policy hands forever. Sure, uh, and we've talked about this in the show before. Sadly, um, the people who r- rack up the most experience in foreign policy are not um, the most skeptical about uh, intervention. I mean, uh, leadership uh, level. Uh, and sort of uh, can get on the New York Times op-ed page level of uh, experience as opposed to someone who's just taken, you know, four different tours to Afghanistan and is now totally disillusioned and the super into Ron Paul and is listening to, you know, Dave Smith's podcasts. Uh, I think there's uh, different uh, levels of play there. <clears throat> so I think those presidents are both susceptible to be wowed, but also to be a little bit bowled over by a kind of monolithic establishment point of view. But I want to point out one other thing, and I think this kind of ties together the room, this rug, Mm. um, uh, but ties together the Sheriff Joe Arpaio thing and the Trump Afghanistan surge and even especially his weird ass anecdote about pig's blood and General Black Jack Pershing, who two weeks ago, he said, we got to study him. This is in the wake of the Barcelona terror attack on uh, August 17th. I, wa- I think it was like hours later. Um, Trump says you have to study what Pershing did uh, uh, way back when, you know, after he was done, we didn't have radical Islamic uh, terrorism for 35 years. This is a reference. He didn't explicitly quote it, but it was one of his favorite stories that he told on the campaign trail about how uh, allegedly in the Philippines 100 years ago, uh, John Blackjack Pershing there, who was trying to pacify or put down the, I believe, the Moro rebellion uh, against uh, U.S. occupation there. Mm-hmm. In Trump's telling, got 50 village leaders. They all saw what was going on. He dipped 50 bullets in pig's blood. And since these guys were Muslim, that uh, you know obviously creeped them out. Shot personally 49 of them. And then told the 50th, go back and tell all the villagers. And that was it. Ball game over. It's a story Trump loved to tell. It became so commonplace that there's a great New York Times Magazine story from April 2016 where they said there's three stories he always tells in every thing. And this one is the most like uh, macabre. It's called, the, you know, I just started referring to it as the bullet story mm-hmm. where he like in the story, it's it's Trump who's putting the shot in the rifle, uh, I think, uh, in it. And he's like digging the graves and he's splitting open the pig and all this. Nothing. None of this happened. It didn't come close to happening. It is so remarkably untrue. And a thing that is interesting about this, it's untrueness, is that he he started dusting this off or it got noticed. I think a combination of the two in February of 2016. Hmm. February 2016 is a very interesting month. That's the month, um, I think, ultimately decisive in the GOP primary campaign where Trump went to South Carolina 
called the whole entire Bush family a bunch of loser war starters and nation builders mm-hmm. who've gotten us into one disastrous war after another and should get the hell out of public life. I mean, pretty strong in a very military state, um, saying things that, you know, with a different bit of language, wouldn't be completely out of step with Ron Paul in 2008. Um, but then he's also making these incredibly bellicose kind of Jacksonian notes of if we just dip bullets in pig's blood and commit war crimes, that's going to teach these sons of bitches how to do it. So when he dusted this off in February 2016, what happened? Well, everyone called him out on it. Mm -hmm. Everyone. I mean, Snopes already had like an existing thing. PolitiFact did a really great piece a few days afterwards, interviewing eight historians who've written books about this. And like, it's a total fabrication. It's crazy. It not only gets it wrong, but it like gets the essential nature of Pershing wrong. Pershing under, unlike his predecessor saw that the heavy hand of atrocities was actually kind of creating more terrorists. And so he very consciously waged a hearts and minds campaign. Um, And also the moral rebellion wasn't like a radical, Islamic, uh, you know, transnational group out there trying to commit terrorism. It was they were rebelling against an occupation. Uh, it was it's much more localized, which most kind of both terrorisms or counter or, or insurgencies uh, tend to be. It's everything about this was wrong. It was completely fact checked at the time. Marco Rubio called him out on it. Every single large newspaper, the Associated Press, sent across on its wire, just like this is made up garbage lie. Um, what did Trump do? He kept telling the story <laughs> like he's like, yeah, all right, whatever. Uh, I mean, so anyone who's like studied the Naval War College, who's West Point, all these people. And we have really great academic and historian or historical disciplines having to do with military in this country. Uh, people who study this stuff within an inch of their lives in order to try to learn from the mistakes to go forward. I can imagine them just tearing their hair out over hearing this. Well, he keeps telling the story and, and embellishing it as it goes and different details end. But what's the moral of the story? The moral is uh, that what we really need to do is to be tough. And if you think about it, um, uh, he said in a variety of different settings, the problem is we're fighting too much of a politically correct war. Mm-hmm. His famous statement in tw- to December 2015 uh, interview on Fox and Friends his favorite television show was that, hey, we've been fighting too politically correct. That's what's the problem in Afghanistan. We got to go out and kill not just the terrorists, but their their families. families. Yeah. So this instinct is has been part of him for a long time. At the same time as his, in my mind, totally correct instinct of what the hell have we been doing in Afghanistan for 17 years? Mm -hmm. All right. Even in the same interview that he did with the Times of London and built in uh, January uh, this year as president elect, he had those notions in the same paragraph. Like Afghanistan's a disaster. We've been there for 17 years. We're not winning. Nothing's going on. What are we doing there? And I'm like, okay, fist bump time. And then at the bottom is, well, the problem is we're not letting our boys win. This is a fantasy. And the 1033 pro uh, program is part of the fantasy that if we just get tough, if we just take off the shackles, we heard very similar conversations when there were uh, discussions about torture, uh, which, again, Trump is on this one side. And I think the wrong side of it, that if only, you know, we were allowed to fight just as dirty as the bad guys, then that would be the thing to tip it over. This is juvenile junior high school bullshit. Mm -hmm. And this is a driving force, not just 
in Donald Trump's mind, but in a significant portion of the population in this country and has been for a long time. It probably lists more. I think definitely lists more on the Republican conservative side. But it is this totally juvenile thing. If we just take the gloves off, we'll fight to win. And then, by God, even though we don't necessarily have an objective here that we can name and that we've been trying and doing various things about this for forever and ever, this is really going to turn the corner on it. It's garbage. So we have to go after that mindset in addition to everything else, because so many of our fellow citizens still have it after all of this time. And I think the first and best people to tell the stories of why that won't work and hasn't worked are people who have been out there who've either experienced it themselves, like John McCain has in terms of the torture aspect of it, um, but who've been trying to prosecute these wars themselves and have seen their brothers and sisters die. Yeah, well, that's I mean, I think that's a great point. And if we uh, I think we'll probably cut out of here in a little bit. I want to do a couple more things. Obviously, there's other foreign policy stuff that that we haven't talked about today. And I'm sure we'll get to later because it's not going away. North Korea um, firing rockets right over Japan. Um, Eric Prince, who wrote an uh, opinion piece this week uh, explaining why his uh, mercenaries are the right guys. Um, and I, I don't think it's a disparagement to call them mercenaries. They're guys who get paid to go fight. Um, but his mercenaries are the right guys to fight this battle because they can mix it up enough in, in Afghanistan and, and make things complicated enough so that it works um, and we finally win in Afghanistan, whatever that means. Um, but there's another war going on outside no man is safe from. Uh, that's a, a Mob Deep reference. and you. I, I totally was there with you. Oh, good. Um, Berkeley, Not. there's apparently something happening out there. Fisher... What on earth is uh, this Berkeley business? Can you uh, right, well, contextualize we, this for me? Yeah, as, as fans of the show will know, there's been a, a whole lot of hubbub in Berkeley, so we don't need to go over all that. But uh, what's what's happening now, the hubbub is over things that have not yet transpired. And uh, Ben Shapiro, who is a, uh, a conservative commentator of some internet note, uh, former Breitbart writer, but uh, by no means a member of the alt-right, in fact, uh, a, a devout religious Jew, um, he is planning one of these, uh, quote unquote, free speech rallies. And I'm sure we would all love them to stop calling them free speech rallies. Uh, but the Berkeley mayor, because of the threat of violence, is threatening to deny uh, their legal rights to uh, assemble uh, for this rally in a couple of weeks. I believe it's uh, the weekend of the 23rd or the 24th of September. So that's Strike one against Berkeley mayor. Uh, strike two coming from the other side is that the Berkeley mayor is justifying this by uh, threatening to somehow use his position to label Antifa as a gang uh, under and using criminal statutes to do that. So he's getting it from both ends uh, and pretty much doing the wrong thing by free speech and by basically just managing uh, the, the work of government uh, as one could do. It was a $15,000 security fee or something like that what that was going to be levied yeah, uh, which on is Ben? Yeah, which is justifying because uh, Milo's uh, speech at Berkeley was uh, $100,000 worth of damage uh, was done by Antifa and related groups to to stop him from talking to a group of 30. If, if, they were, if, they're, if there are even 30 college Republicans at Berkeley, that'd be amazing. Uh, what I don't understand is... Um how hard of a uh, policing problem can it be? 
I'm not saying policing is easy in general and certainly not in Berkeley and certainly not with Antifa, let alone a bunch of uh, tiki torch assholes, which Ben Shapiro is absolutely not. I mean, he was he left Breitbart in a huff and was, along with a couple other people, the target of some of the most vile anti-Semitic alt-right slurs. And I think in the process, he's he's transferred from being kind of a a typical controversialist, 23 year old uh, conservative clown boy. Uh, he's pretty good. I don't know. The last time you saw him uh, talk, he's he's got his stuff. Together. No, no, he's, he's, I mean, yeah, much he's, more uh, impressive than he uh, than he used to be. Well, I mean, he's on the spectrum. He's, he's using that to his advantage. And he also, it's, it's his superpower. And, and let's make no, let's make no mistake. He's he is as obsessed with Antifa as the alt right is. He, sure, it's it's he drives that home every single day. But as far as I can tell, he's he's no fellow traveler by any stretch of the imagination. But it was, I mean, there was Michelle Fields like the the grab gate yes. he defected yes. from Breitbart. Right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, but to me, it's I'm trying to think of if there has ever been a more direct application or demonstration of the heckler's veto. Mm. I mean, this is really OK. Here's someone who wants to speak. These are people who have demonstrated three or four different times in Berkeley over the last 12 to 18 months. Right. That uh, if there's someone that they don't like, they will commit acts of violence and not just that, but like render parts of the uh, city or the campus unpoliceable or at least unpoliced is probably the better term for it. Like the cops just like, ah, whew, too many people uh, <laughs> go and take a break. Yeah. So they've done that. And as a result, the mayor clearly doesn't like Antifa at all um, is like, well, um, because they're going to come and heckle your speech, I'm going to have to veto it. <laughs> I mean, it's as, it's as direct as it gets. Uh, so for me, it's it's the ultimate kind of uh, modern contemporary uh, gut check test of where we are, because that's not the only one of these things that, uh, that, that that's been out there. I believe in Portland, Maine or Portland, Oregon, probably Maine, actually. Um, there had been a, a similar cancellation uh, of an event. Nancy Pelosi, whose uh, people were congratulating this week because she condemned Antifa, which is a, a thing that I think uh, people are now like uh, doing. Is that that's the new litmus that's, test this week to yeah. see if you're a monster? Uh, how, stri- how stridently you'll condemn Antifa. And you know what? Like, she's much more of a monster because uh, 10 days ago or two weeks ago, she was the one saying that she didn't want the Patriot, you know, vigil on the Presidio or on some park in in, uh, in the Bay Area because, you know, those are those people are peddling hate. And as we saw with Jacob Siegel here last week, which mm-hmm. I thought was really a tremendous uh, kind of educational experience for me, um, it's so easy for people right now, particularly in the bluest of the blue areas, mm-hmm. to assume that Ben Shapiro is a tiki Nazi or that uh, that the free, free speech, uh, you know, 4chan kids in Boston are neo-Nazi white supremacists. We got we got we rounded up most of the neo-Nazi white supremacists in Charlottesville three weeks ago. <laughs> There's 250 of them. Right. Uh, as we mentioned here in the show, I mean, some of them came from Sweden and then they all immediately started infighting, distancing themselves from one another. Like it it started breaking down. They, I think they scared themselves a little mm-hmm. bit. I think so Sieg might actually uh, you might disagree with the appraisal of how many of them there are. You may you may think there are more. They just weren't out at that protest could, in Boston. All could be true. They certainly were. They were also not in Berkeley. Um, the, the folks getting uh, pepper sprayed and stuff were Trump supporters just just wearing hats. No, I, I, I would have to take issue with that because I've actually done a little bit of parrying on uh, on Twitter with Shane Bauer of Mother Jones, who is one of the people who actually shot uh-huh. uh, one of the most disseminated videos of uh, the mob violence. And he was a little annoyed at the question, but I, I asked directly is the guy getting beaten a Nazi or not? Or is he just a Trump supporter? And, you know, to to 
I'm sure he would be much his his threshold for Nazi would be much lower than mine. But he was able to dig up tweets from this guy where he was kind of egging on violence from the alt right in Charlottesville, basically approving of uh, violence. You know, he uh-huh. actually he made he made a comment that it's time for right wing death squads. So again, some gross stuff. Right, but, but that's but, still you know, not Nazi I, Nazi propaganda. I, I I agree with you, but yeah. but here's the thing: we're going down the rabbit hole we shouldn't be going down on, which is that we I believe. The three of us at least would say even nazis just protest them laugh at them mock true, them isolate true. them yep, don't right. punch them yeah it, which which apparently is a thing that we need to stress yeah we, it's, um, we've lost that threat it's over now yeah now we're so. saying like now, now it's it's a matter of uh, adjudicating as to whether or not they're nazis or not because of course you punch nazis yeah oh 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 don't let this get you down camille yeah. That, that, that was a dramatic side. It the, was a dramatic side. You know, I'm moving, actually he moves mansions well, every like <laughs> week and a half in Bedstock. Well, no, no, no. Like, I'm moving pick your mansion. I'm moving out of my two bedroom hovel um, into the <laughs> into the the compound. The compound. That's what we'll call it. Um, and and I've got to do that move tomorrow. So we should get the hell out of here because um, someone has to to edit this and post it to the interwebs and, and various other things. Thanks, and, Anthony. And be, we gave him a good show. Yeah, um, I, I think that was good. I think that's fine. Yeah. We can get the hell out of here. I we, think we're we, fine. We dropped some science. Yeah, did any idiot Bailey? write anything? Idiots are writing things all of the time. I'll take one idiot here. Um, and uh, and this may sound too harsh, but uh, I'm going to go after uh, Mr. Bruce Bartlett. He's a guy who used to be a uh, uh, professional conservative forever. And now he's a professional professional conservative hater, uh, calls conservatives wankers all the time. Um, <laughs> and it's not that it's not that he changes that they did this kind of thing. Um uh, whatever, that's fine. Do what you want to do. But there was this thing that a lot of you may have seen on Twitter that a few idiots had uh, forwarded a picture of, I think, uh, who they claimed to be Michelle Obama during Hurricane Katrina, uh, demonstrating that she like just didn't care and she was like off doing something fancy instead. And the picture Oh, it's quite obviously uh, Condoleezza Rice <laughs> and like and the, and the claim that the Obamas didn't care about Katrina. Like they he, they weren't the president. Right. It's dumb. But like no human being that I saw that I'd ever recognized who had ever had a byline anywhere, who had ever held office, who ever had a recognizable name shared this. You're just going to get. Just like how many people shared the shark photo in uh, in the floodwaters, that always comes up. It's always bullshit. People do it, but the people who do it generally aren't thought leaders. So uh, a handful of people do it. Snopes comes out and points out that this isn't true, and then does this irritating tweet, which is like, you know, so many people did this, we just had to correct the record here. Can you believe it? You know, shaking our damn heads that people had to do this. Bartlett shifts it to, there were so many Republican wankers forwarding this that Snopes had to do this. (laughs) Let's be clear about something here. Like, fact-checking organizations, they make choices. Their choices have lots of reasons. Some of them are because they're the purest fact-checkingness of fact-checkers in the world. Maybe some of it is like they wake up in the morning irritated at wankers and want to show that they are wankers. This is not something that Snopes had to do. This is something that Snopes chose to do. Right, they need great. content. They need content. Great. They did it. But let's not over-pretend that a handful of idiots on Twitter represent an entire political tendency. Step back a little bit. Live a little. Hey, uh, I've got an idiot who wrote something. Oh, is that right? Yeah. A, uh, a professor of law at the University of Chicago published in the L.A. Times. A, uh, a, the, the headline is, the ACLU's free speech stance should be about social justice, not 
quote unquote timeless principles. Oh, that's an idea. That's, that's an interesting yeah. idea. Why do you even have to write after that? <laughs> yeah, just like, nailed it. Yeah, it's uh, it, it, it this it rightfully got ratioed on Twitter. Uh, so the uh, the I'll spare you the details where they they lay out that even as the Nazis, the real Nazis, uh, rose to power, that uh, the ACLU defended the rights of uh, Nazi and other racist groups in the United States to uh, peaceably peaceably assemble and be imbeciles and be protested. Uh, the kicker, though, is the balances have shifted dramatically since the 1930s. In recent years, nearly half of First Amendment victories have gone to corporations and trade groups challenging government regulation. Free speech has served to secure the political influence of wealthy donors. And then it goes into labor and how labor is weakened. Uh, today's First Amendment has plenty of eager defenders. As the ACLU reassesses its agenda, it should consider a warning issued by a disaffected board member when on the brink of World War II, the organization assumed its current neutral posture. Speech and other civil liberties are only meaningful to only meaningful to men who dare to use them. Whoa, that's the kicker. So basically, if corporations uh, and racists are running government, the only way to protect marginalized people and labor is to make government the arbiter of free speech. That sounds yeah. right. No, no, it makes total sense. Yes. Except not at all. I, 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 I can't. I cannot <sighs> believe how many times we're going to have to say. During the most hated administration by the left ever, that giving the federal government more power to police speech maybe isn't the greatest idea. <sighs> Some things seem self-evident, but yeah. you got to keep talking about it. Speaking of self-evident, I, I will mention this. I'm, I wasn't going to mention it, and maybe maybe later they'll do more. At, at some point, there maybe ought to be like a segment on this show, like about studies say and articles with headlines about what studies say. Um, I saw, um, not, I, I don't know if I could say friend of the program cause I don't, I don't think we're friends. There's a, it ended in a bit of a huff, but DeRay had tweeted, um, an article, um, and then retweeted his tweet about the article from a day earlier. Um, and the headline of this article is infants race influences quality of hospital care in California. I know what you are expecting this article to be about. There's a, a quote here in, in one piece of it. Unconscious social biases that we all have make their way into NICUs. We would like to encourage NICU caregivers to think about how these disparities play out um, in their own units. Uh, what's super interesting about this piece, the punchline you are expecting to come never materializes. As it turns out, African-American and white and Asian children, infants in these hospitals based on this very study, have outcomes that are virtually identical to one another, virtually identical. In fact, when the hospital is a low performing hospital, oftentimes there is no disparity whatsoever between these different racial groups. And sometimes African-American babies do much better. What happens, however, as the quality of these NICUs improve, there does tend to be more improvements accruing to the white infants as opposed to the African-American infants. The priority here is doing something about the disparity that exists 
between these different racial groups. And one wonders about the amount of effort that goes into actually both championing reform um, in these NICUs, actually advocating for best practices in these NICUs, and whether or not what one should be reaching for is improving the quality of the NICU overall so that total performance increases for everyone and average odds are improved for everyone, even if it means that somehow or another disparities exist, or if the most important thing is that we have equivalent outcomes, because you have equivalent outcomes in those lower performing NICUs. Um, It seems like an odd thing to make the lodestone of policy. It seems like an odd thing to make the principal takeaway or the principal interest of your study. And it sure as hell seems like an odd headline to make um, with respect to stories about this particular study. The fact that there just doesn't seem to be a lot of distance between those groups is very important. If you're wondering where the disparity does exist, it turns out that Latino um, and other racial groups. It's just this broader category of other seem to have some issues. And the study itself does indicate, or at least the doctor when interviewed about the study does indicate that it might be the case that not speaking English is part of the chat, introduces challenges when it comes to talking to doctors and actually interfacing with them and getting to good outcomes. Some of the, some of the indicators of whether or not these children were having better outcomes or receiving quality care was whether or not the mother was lactating before she left the hospital. Is that racism that makes that happen? Is it bias? And the reason I ask that question is because whenever you're asking questions about disparate outcomes, you are likely talking about one of two things here, right? It's either the disparate outcome with respect to race is a consequence of discrimination on the basis of race or some kind of inherent difference as a consequence of race, biological. If you're in fact talking about societal realities, various uh, socioeconomic disparities that exist between racial groups, then that might be the thing that you should study. What is the income level of this family? Is there is there milk at home? Are they drinking milk? Is mom eating an egg every day when she's pregnant with this child? You could study those things directly. And my suspicion is that the reason why DeRay and various other people retweeted and tweeted this link is because they didn't bother to read the story itself and perhaps certainly didn't bother to read the study. God, I've got a hard on for um, like healthcare services. I I think could rephrase eh, the reason I bring this up is because I've got a thing for healthcare service providers. Um, I wish more people would take ownership of their own health when they go to see the doctor. Don't have the expectation that they're going to ask you all of the appropriate questions. It is your responsibility to ensure that you get good care when you walk into a medical practitioner's office and sit down, ask probing questions, not necessarily make them uncomfortable deliberately, but never accept their recommendation is good enough. Go and do some research on WebMD when you are going to have a baby. Make certain that you have an expectation of what ought to be provided while you're in the room. It's certainly high stress. It's certainly high pressure. But owning those outcomes is good for you. That is an insight that might be useful to a parent who is going into the hospital, Um, going to the hospital, worrying about whether or not unconscious bias is going to have an impact on the outcomes for your child. Um, 
is probably not going to be nearly as helpful. Uh, it might lead to paranoia. It probably won't lead to better outcomes for your uh, for your infant. I think these are all great points. I just wish you could have made them without using the terrible word NICUs. I, I just thought that we'd we'd gone <laughs> as a society. Um, but, uh, I'm sorry. Shout out to my uh, dear friend uh, Ken Lane, who has a great publication and podcast, both called The Desert Oracle. Um, we've been collaborators in uh, journalism and music for 25 years, but I bring him up because back when he was the editor in the 90s of one of the first great internet newspapers called tabloid.net, which is a great early inspiration for Nick Denton, um, uh, who he ended up hmm. working for, um, they had a regular feature <laughs> called New Study Proves It, which was a way to kind of lament the way that most journalism is done about studies. That's how the local TV stations, are. a new study says that if you just drink a barrel full of shit every day, you'll live to be 103. <laughs> um, and so what Except I would, no. what I would suggest, uh, Camille, as mm-hmm. part of your uh, suggestion is that this should be called the new study doesn't prove it. Because, in fact, these things that people point out, hmm. they haven't read it, and it doesn't prove what they think they're proving, and they pass it along like wildfire, and yeah. we could probably find one a week. It's certainly the case that in, in many instances, the journalists themselves are not expert in the, in the things that they are covering, um, and they are at the mercy of the researchers, who they themselves, you might be a really bright doctor, you might be a really bright sort of medical researcher, you may or may not have expertise in some of the other variables or factors that you are, that you're considering. Um, but at any rate, uh, I think we've done enough damage here. Um, we got to get the hell out of here. Um, I hope you gentlemen have a wonderful long holiday weekend. This is a holiday weekend, right? Uh, when you moved in, uh, give us a shout. Yeah. We'll uh, come over and uh, will. will you bring my grill over and we'll, we'll oh, grill? Oh, shit. Yeah. We got to leave the grill back. <laughs> yeah. That I grill's kid, so good. I'm going to go go get to it. I got to go pack. Bye. 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 We, 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 we know of new methods of attack. <laughs> <laughs>